Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that celebrates diversity in cinema both in front of and behind the camera by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films and exploring their pop culture significance. My name is Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Our show is hosted by the fine folks at ModernSuperior.com. I would highly recommend that you visit their site, not only to discover great podcasts such as A Frame of Part, for example, but you can also find links to the short films that we discuss in each episode. Also, Modern Superior recently launched a Patreon page, so you should definitely give that a look and discover all the great perks that come with being a Patreon member. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and if you're on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it if you rate our show, um, if you like what you hear, or even if you don't. All feedback is good feedback to us. I've been trying to get into the habit of mentally going, hey, listeners, if you would like, share, subscribe, take some time to rate us on iTunes, that would be super. It would be super. I'm practicing that clean voice, not for voiceover work, but just so that it sounds as Midwestern, sincerely polite as possible. So, yes, please go check us out and rate us. Polite is always a great way to get feedback. (laughs) And how are you doing today? Oh, busy, 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 busy. Um, Attentive listeners will know that I was able to relaunch Can't Stop the Movies a few weeks back, so I've been continuing my nice writing groove there. I've now gotten to the point where I feel mentally and physically antsy if I don't write every day. So that's a good place to be. It's been a long time since I felt that way, so I've been happy and productive for the first time in years, turns out getting rid of corporate skullduggery is a healthy choice. Other than that, playing video games, uh, actually trying to take more serious notes there, listen to some quality, not academic, but serious-ish podcasts on that, so I can start writing about those as well. And I uh, had a mother-in-law semi-week, which was very nice. Got to visit with her and my wife's aunt. Lots of lovely conversation there and tons of delicious food. Time is short, but it's filled being productive and happy, so I can't complain. How about you? Oh, uh, not too bad for similar to you it's been a busy time of family uh, my son's birthday we have family in from out of town as we mentioned the last episode or as i mentioned last episode hot dogs is going on right now as we're recording this and i guess by the time this episode airs it will be towards the, t- the tail end of, of hot dogs so it's just been a, a busy time a lot of documentary goodness but I, i'm not taking any time off for for this particular festival so burning the candle at both ends but it's been fun yeah, you've got a truly admirable work ethic, my man. I've really got to step up my, I guess, finding out if there's like an Atlanta film festival or something. I mean, it's freaking Atlanta. It's basically the Chicago of the South. So there's got to be something around here. But yeah, you're making me feel lazy, my man, which is a good thing. Don't take that the bad way. I can't even take credit because it's the city. If anyone who's been to Toronto or, or those who live in Toronto know, it's it's a film festival haven. Like there's literally almost every week depending on what you're interested in, there's a film festival. So it's almost like choosing which ones you want to go to because you, you can't hit them all. But Hot Docs is definitely one that I like to partake in just because documentaries are great. One of the things I love about this festival is that students and seniors get in for free during daytime screenings. Oh, that's nice. You know, and they're, sh- they're showing like films that played at Sundance and all over the world having world premieres and it's great that you're in line and you're just talking to some retirees and they're sharing the great docs that they've seen and you're talking about the ones that you've seen and everyone's taking notes it's it's a fun time well that's a really great way so that young and old alike can keep their education flowing no matter what because I mean, I know that I will basically be brain dead before I ever, like, lose my desire to learn anything, and it's nice that it doesn't really discriminate in that way, so that's 
that's just a cool thing. Kudos to them. So we like to start off each episode by highlighting two short films that caught our attention. And these are short films that you can see online. And again, we'll post links in our show notes in the Modern Superior website. So, Andrew, why don't you kick us off with your short of the week? I know that we tried to kind of shed some of our darkness with the last episode on The Wailing with kind of some lighthearted Korean short picks that still didn't really leave us with a very bright month of Korean movies. So this month, uh, in honor of the Inside Out Film and Video Festival, which is a festival that focuses specifically on LGBT movies, that's what our month is going to be this month. Uh, We're going to be focusing on LGBT movies. And in the spirit of trying to lighten up a bit, I stumbled on this documentary. The title is a delight. It's These Cocksucking Tears, directed by Dan Taberski. It features Patrick Haggerty, who was the first, and I, I after doing a little digging, it looks like the absolute actual first, as in the Country Music Hall of Fame has his record there, the first openly gay country artist to release an album about being openly gay and their struggles. For those of you who aren't in the States and maybe aren't too familiar with our obsession with country music, country music is so big that it has its own charts, and country music isn't exactly the most hospitable place for people who are not white, pretty folks. Very heteronormative, very straight-laced, and it was refreshing and brave to hear Patrick talk so openly about becoming radicalized. He was closeted in an early joke from him. He's talking about a song on his album. He says, I wrote this when I was a pissed-off straight man. The album itself and him is is still in the process of coming out because people are still discovering it, and he has these relics of when he was a bit more closeted. The documentary is straightforward. There are no Errol Morris-esque tricks here, no Michael Moore voiceovers, no Sarah Polly confusion addled in with the narrative, nothing special. But I think the documentary benefits from that because Patrick's story is complicated and he's so open and willing to talk about it that any tricks any kind of a narrative weirdness would have detracted from just this lovely man, us getting to know him a bit and finding out what a fucking badass he is, as he says to a tree, a mother maple. Straightforward, but he was so cool that I didn't really mind that so much. So, Courtney, what'd you think? It's funny because one of the notes I wrote down was cool character. Uh, (laughs) I knew nothing of Haggerty's story, and this short was a first-time experience for me. Now, I'll admit, I know very little about country music outside of a few of the... I guess, big-name artists that have crossed over somewhat into the mainstream pop culture. I'm coming at this from a completely foreigner perspective, but I I really like this short. And I'll piggyback off of your point about the film being straightforward and simplistic, but in a good way. And I think Hegarty is such a delightful individual and such a natural storyteller, you know, both in his songs and just talking naturally. You don't need any special cuts. uh, You don't need any reenactments. He creates the picture in your mind for you. And there's a certain amount of humor in it that helps to hit the seriousness home. Like when he's talking about he never had problems 
Um, I wrote that down. I had no problem getting a bucket of sex whenever yes, I wanted. Yes, uh, getting a bucket of sex. You know, I'm just like, wow, they come in buckets now? I didn't even realize that. Uh, but he counters that by also saying for him the problem was getting intimacy and relationships and that awkwardness the morning after, you know, when you realize that what you're hoping will develop won't develop into anything more serious. And there's a somber tone to much of his life, but it's told in such a vivid way that you really do feel for him. Well, I didn't even think about that because that's like a perfect parallel to Pariah that we'll be discussing a little later on. But yeah, his humor helps some of the pain that he went through and worked through go down smoothly. It's that humor that, man, (laughs) because you, you see that picture of him. And in my notes... I wrote super handsome man, like super handsome. Then next to it is when I had to write, I had no problem getting a bucket of sex. He's so self-effacing, but it's in that tricky way that still lets his confidence shine through. When he's talking about his singing voice and he says, I wish I had a beautiful voice. Oops. He's aware of his shortcomings as an artist, but he's, he still likes working on them. It's someone who's in their 70s. I mean, how can you not take some inspiration from that? I will have to backtrack a bit. There is one tiny narrative trick that director Dan Taberski does, and that's cross-pollinate his brand of openly gay country with punk music in his area. It was just cool seeing these mutually accepting groups. Going back to how Patrick is a bit self-effacing, he says it's hard to listen to their music, but I unplug my hearing aid and it helps a lot. (laughs) He's so respectful of philosophies and how other people choose to express themselves, which is fitting considering his place in history, but he was just a fun guy, and I I enjoyed spending a little bit of time with him there. Yeah, and I found it interesting that, you know, he's playing with these punk musicians and even though he doesn't necessarily like the music. And punk has always been against establishment. And a lot of his own life story is basically being against the establishment and having the establishment be against him. When he was talking about how he was basically robbed of his Nashville stardom, when you see this film, you listen to some of the music, you're like, yeah, why weren't you a bigger name? Oh, right. Whereas punk music, you would never associate him hanging out with a punk band. But then you start thinking about in terms of acceptance, of course, that would be the natural place where he would find it. Blissfully, there were no skinheads in the audience. They would take a definitely odd turn if the documentary turned into green room, but hey, you find your acceptance where you find it, and I'm glad that these punks and these country farts were able to find something to connect on and make us all a little happy in the process. So, Courtney, I think you went back to an interesting well animation-wise. I enjoyed your pick. Why don't you tell us a bit about it? My pick is a film called Half, and it was directed by Alex Bose, and it's a simplistic tale of two women who are both artists and, by all accounts, could possibly be perfect for each other, but their paths seem to cross, but they don't make that connection until way too late. kind of reminded me both of Xavier Dolan's heartbeats in terms of the kind of whimsical nature of it, but then also Pariah, because the color palette Bose uses in this film is really striking, because most of it is told in split screen, so you see 
one woman in a, I guess kind of a pinkish hue and the other one's in more of a, a yellow hue and I guess they're in pretty much a lot of the same environments for the most part because they're both taking public transit to begin their day they both end up in the same street and end up crossing paths and accidentally exchanging books but the entire time you're still getting the sense that they're they're coming from two different worlds thanks to the the color palette even though their worlds one could assume is not that different and yeah there is a part where you get to see their drawings and their caricatures of themselves and how those caricatures seem to be more in tune with the romantic possibilities before the actual uh, artists are themselves so again it's a very simple short very interesting premise but it flows so well and i like the way that it ends yeah it's very bittersweet it doesn't have a happy ending exactly and it's kind of funny because i watched la la land and reviewed that earlier today and i i i didn't really like it so much and they have a will they won't they with an epilogue at the end finding out that here's what might have happened if it was perfect i was impressed that half managed to say way more about these people and their relationship in the five-ish minutes than it runs than two hours with the selfish folks in la la land and if you like la la land listener cool it's just those were awful people but half their little routines and their style of dress, they are in sync before they even meet each other. And that's why I love the split-screen approach, because it could be a little gimmicky. But the natural balance of their lives, um, how they go about their day, with those slight differences, like you said, I thought that it was actually different timelines, and we were hitting the one point where they sync up, because I thought that right-screen girl was kind of during the night, and left-screen girl was during the day. It doesn't detract from your point about the lush color palette that they use here. It's fantastic. And the other thing I, I did like about this was getting me to think about more on how people perceive themselves on lgbt issues i've gotten a lot better on the lgb portion i'm still working on the t and i felt a little bit of shame when i realized that the drawings that they were making they weren't of boys they were of themselves essentially but then i got to thinking more and i was like well you have no idea the you in this case being me andrew the speaker you have no idea how these folks choose to perceive themselves it's not your place really to figure that out it's more to sit here and enjoy the images and see how they interact with each other i plan on rewatching this with that in mind because it really helped to get additional perspective because it wasn't my perspective, because I get tripped up on this stuff sometimes. Well, it was, a, a like I said, a bit of shame. Everything was so delightful and mildly educational that it, it hit me really nicely. It's interesting, because just to hop back to the split screen thing, because I found it interesting that you were saying that you saw it as two different timelines, like n night and day, because I almost saw it as the same timeline for the most part. Then when they deviate with each other's sketchbook, that's when I started to wonder, when are we jumping forward? Like, Are we going much forward in time, or is it still around the same time, but just different spaces? Because there's that great moment where they're both at the elevator, or yeah. perspective elevators, and you think you're going to get that 
moment of, haha, I've been thinking about you and here you are, but you don't get that. It's that little tease and it's like, no, no, this is how things are in the real world. In the real world, things aren't so perfect and cute. Not, I guess, as you would say, La La Land. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is a, a discussion for a whole other day because that would be a very interesting film to discuss here. That idea that life isn't always so sweet. You know, we have a lot of these moments where we pass by people who might have been perfect for us, even at, for that particular moment in time that we let slip away and didn't even realize until too late. That's what's beautiful about it. One of the things I adored in a very subtle fashion was right side frame, which I'm still pretty sure was nighttime for a very specific reason. I went to school at Illinois State University, graduated from there in uh, late 2010, and I distinctly remember that shade of yellow that the entire library seemed to kind of implode with when finals time came around because when finals time came around the library was open 24 7 it was that yellow when they're in the because it, I, I believe they are in a library there in the elevator it made me feel kind of like I was at home in a weird way because I loved everyone just kind of shuffling about, each acknowledging each other's academic payload that they have to deliver and making your little jokes and such where you can. The idea of that missed connection, tiny missed connection that could have been something else, but really it's just going to be amusing that you have later on that day, mixing with night in the library. It was all just reassuring to me in a nice way like it made me feel like linus with a warm blanket at home and comfortable and really happy that these two people still got a glimpse of each other even if ultimately they separate you never know maybe they might meet up another point and maybe the left frame girl will get rid of her significant other that she doesn't seem too uh interested in anymore yeah, she doesn't seem to i've been in those situations where you've kind of got attractions split up and for a while at least you still like spending time with that one person over the other and i was getting the same sense as you i was getting the sense that whatever left frame girl is doing with her girlfriend probably isn't gonna last too much longer we should point out there's very little dialogue in this it's 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 more images and tone so when you hear her saying left frame girl, right frame girl <laughs> yes, that's probably that's because we point. probably didn't get their name or maybe they did mention the name at some point but we didn't catch it because we were just so absorbed into the film so we're not trying to be uh judgmental of them we're, that's just how we refer them <laughs> i don't recall the names ever being spoken though if the uh, director performers if anyone listens to this and uh, would like to chastise us please do so we are more than open for chastisement i guess for the record the three girls' names are andy emma and hannah do not ask me which girl is which name because i don't i agree with you i don't think their names are ever spoken but there's probably more embarrassing things we put in our podcast very true with that we're going to take a moment to change reels and then when we come back we'll be talking about our feature film of the day pariah Our feature film today is D. Rees' 2011 film Pariah. It's a film that tells the story of Alige, played by Adepero Oduya, a 17-year-old African-American teenager struggling to come to terms with her sexual identity, especially in an environment that refuses to acknowledge who she really is. Andrew, what made you choose this great film this week? 
Pariah is a special film for me. I, I know that a lot of these movies are special in their own way, but this was my fourth time watching it. And every time I've seen Pariah, I have gotten some new bit of density to latch on to. The first time I watched it, I was overwhelmed by the emotion. The second time I watched it was the photography. Bradford Young's cinematography in this is gorgeous, with one of the most gripping openings in movie history on a pure visual front. Third time I watched it, I was more focused on the relationship between Lee and her father, Arthur. This time, when I was watching it, I was taken over by how many different storylines and how many different pariahs, essentially, people who feel outcast from their own groups the movie is filled with. Obviously, our pariah in question is Lee. I like how you put it that the environment won't accept her for what she is because everyone knows that she's gay. Everyone can see that. It's that eventually violent refusal to see it and accept it. That second half is what's missing. No one accepts it. That... It made everyone a little more sympathetic when you consider how they feel ostracized in their own way. Like her eventual love interest, Bina, is being presented as like this semi-perfect church girl, but she doesn't feel at, at home there, so she likes to go out to rock concerts and clubs by herself or with Lee and find a place to feel at home where she isn't ostracized. Same thing with Arthur. One of the most powerful scenes for me is when Arthur is just kind of shooting the breeze with his friends, and he's accepting of the woman who walks in that everyone labels as gay, and his friend just keeps pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, and Arthur is the one to push back and try and put a stop to all of this. It doesn't work, but a lot of pushing in Pariah doesn't work. So, it has it all, you know. It, it's got a beautifully realized central figure who has complicated relationships with everyone in the cast. All of those sub-characters this fourth time around, they're just so lonely. And we get these hints of all of these things that are going on behind the scenes, especially between Arthur and Audrey, uh, Lee's mother, who is probably as close to a villain as a story like this can get. So there's no shortage of subtext, there's no shortage of text, and there's no shortage of richness no matter where you look into it. The reason it's so special to me is I am still caught completely off guard by the ending with a mother who does not accept what her daughter is. That still shocks me. I have friends who have had cigarettes put out on them by their parents because they were gay. And when I'm hearing their story, I can accept that. But no matter how many times I've seen Pariah, that cold dismissal of Audrey to Lee at the very end, it keeps catching me by surprise. And it's probably because in movies, you know, we're primed for the happy ending, Lee is heading off to a healthier place. Even if she's not as happy as we would like her to be right now, that rejection, it flies in the face of almost everything we accept about these coming-of-age narratives where there is a sort of acceptance. I just have so much hope every time I watch it, and then it's convincing myself leading up to it, no, they did, they did, they must have had some kind of reconciliation, but they don't. And that is so true, 
and it's fresh every time I watch it. And I know that's a painful reality for so many, and it just resonates with me. It goes to show that shared experiences aren't the same experiences, and that Pariah is so beautifully lived in that it does feel like a surprise every time I watch it. I found that scene interesting because it, it parallels a lot of what Laura goes through, but Lee's best friend Laura is living with her sister, and you get glimpses that their relationship, or especially Laura's relationship with her mother, has gone sour. There's that moment where Laura goes to meet her mom all excited just to let her know that, hey, she's, she's turning her life around she's getting her GED and her, her mother can barely look at her Laura is t- also taking in other young women who have been left out on the street on their own it's like just see this pattern going of, of mothers rejecting daughters and one of the things that struck me about Pariah I think this was my third time seeing it but this time I was really focused in on the relationship between Lee and her father her <laughs> that was also fa- my third viewing too that's where I focused on my third viewing yeah there's something really interesting that D. Rees does with that dynamics as much as her parents have issues based on presumably adultery and some other issues that have happened before this film even commences i always got the sense that the father accepted lee just didn't know how to turn that acceptance publicly if you're not willing to do it publicly then are you really truly accepting her because there's a moment where the mother is trying to force lee into wearing i think it was like a particular blouse to make her look a little more feminine. Lee has the tails of the shirt out and the father had a subtle line where he says, I think it looks fine out. And you clearly know that he's not talking about the clothing. And the mother knows that he's not talking about the clothing, but she's refusing to listen. And I and I will say that Kim Wayne's does a phenomenal job in this film and i don't think she gets enough credit when people discuss this film yes she is the villain but you also see a lot of the stuff that she's projecting onto lee is basically her way of trying to fix her broken marriage which can't be fixed like she's very much about conveying an image of i don't want to say normalcy but like a a perfect image so that even after they have that big blow up and lee's out of the house she tries to have this wonderful family dinner as if others outside are watching when no one's really watching everyone knows exactly what's going on and she still tries to put on this facade so there's there's so many layers in this film every time i come back to it it just similar to you something new hits me but in this particular viewing it was the relationship between lee and her father that struck out a little more than lee and the mother which is what hit me the first time when I watched it. Same here, as I, as I interrupted you to say. That dinner scene is, for me, one of the gigantic turning points of Pariah in terms of our perception of every character. I'm glad that you picked up on Arthur saying to Lee, you're fine out, just be out. He's still trying to convince himself otherwise as well, telling Audrey Lee has a boyfriend now, and Audrey correctly (laughs) thinks that that is not correct there's that rage that audrey has and and that's where i want to be clear she's the closest thing pariah has to a villain but she's not without her sympathetic touches there are points where lee could try and bridge the gap a little bit but I honestly, even though I see the opportunity there, Audrey's still the mom. She's the one who's supposed to be the adult and taking responsibility for everything. And that dinner scene is when any doubts or any questions that I had in my mind about what's going on behind the scene between Audrey and Arthur were put to rest. 
both Arthur and Sharonda, who is Lee's younger sister, are terrified of Audrey in that moment. And Audrey is so insistent. This is when we're going to say prayers. This food is going to be delicious. We don't need to worry about having fourth set of food out or anything. And much like Arthur's perception of Lee trying to get her to come out in his own way, I love that Sharonda just cuts through all of the artifice, ignores Audrey, and just says straight to Arthur, you know where she is. It's that not beating around the bush, basically. Like, for as restrained a movie as Pariah can be sometimes, it's only 80 minutes long. It moves at a tight clip. It's rare that I, I watch movie characters and I think to myself, I hope they get help. But she's hitting her daughter. She's terrifying her youngest daughter. Her husband is at his wit's end. And I know we don't get both halves, but we see Audrey's frustration so clearly and that table scene, she's so controlled that it could easily be in a horror movie instead. It's a weird sense of validation that she gets. It's funny because this film is very much about not having the power or the, or the choice to be who you want to be or live the life that you want to live. And for Audrey, I got the sense early on she made a choice. And I, I might be reaching, but I got the sense that she had stepped out first, maybe had a dalliance in the past that Arthur was not willing to forgive her for. And then in turn, he went and stepped out. Again, we only see the point of view of him stepping out. There's some clear tension, and just based on the subtlety of their dialogue in earlier scenes, that's the image that I conveyed of what was going on there. And as much as she tried to force Lee to be a particular way, even forcing like who she hangs out with and basically being that helicopter parent, you know, when she's out calling to make sure she's where she is and making sure that she's arranged all of this, she's doing this to try and convince others that Lee can be changed. And well, I know what Lee is, but no one else wants to acknowledge it. So I'm just going to change her. And by the time you acknowledge, she'll be what I want. When everything blows up and the, the father has to finally face the fact that, yes, he knew his daughter was always gay, but he had to hear it out loud. She almost wears this kind of vindictive crown. There, you see, I have proved my point. But her point isn't a healthy one. As no, you as you yeah. said, it, it's, it's very damaged. Like, whatever has gone on between her and Arthur has really corrupted her. She's tried to save her marriage, and she can't. She's tried to save her daughter in her eyes when her daughter doesn't need saving. She's misplaced all her ideals on the wrong people and what her vision of life should be. And everyone in this film is playing a part to a certain extent you know even arthur when he's as you point out that great scene in the shop with his boys when it comes to the question of well isn't your daughter a lesbian he gets very defensive no no that's not true you know the role that we're playing that doesn't happen and it's funny that he's so accept well not funny haha that he is so accepting and willing to rag on his friend for harassing that woman he's comfortable with homosexuality when it's at a distance but when it comes to his daughter all that he can really muster are these half-hearted warnings about not going to that club and really dancing around it when it just seems like Arthur would be so much more comfortable and we get that at the end we do get that comfortable catharsis at the end when Arthur finally does accept who Lee is. 
it just makes me yearn that that point would come sooner because we see that he is comfortable to a point with homosexuality just not when it comes to his daughter we've talked a lot about some of the supporting characters but even lee herself struggles with wanting to be who she is but still at that age where she's now kind of defining her own sexuality and experiencing that for the first time so there's that great moment at the beginning where she's in the club she's all got the hip-hop swagger going but as she's getting home on the bus then she becomes the I almost want to say the good Christian daughter. She takes off the do rag, the hat, and puts on the proper shirt. Even the way how Bradford Young liked a lot of those scenes, depending on who she's with, you get like the deep, passionate reds and purples of the club and the potential for lust, if you will, and then the lighter, softer shades when she's either at Bina's house or if she's at home and the environment depending on which room she's in she's constantly having to play a part for other people the few times when she actually gets to be herself and i would say especially that moment where her and bina are become intimate even that's taken from her the one moment of joy that she gets is taken from her because that whole situation is being defined by another person so that's one of the things that struck me was that everyone's playing a part and the one person who just wants to be herself has to conform to whatever situation that she's in well, I, I love how you put it with Audrey and her weird sense of validation. Like, I, I take it a step further and almost, like, angry validation, like almost a totalitarian validation. But that validation is what everyone in Pariah is looking for. And, and that's why I'm kind of impressed that we've been able to talk this long and we really haven't even talked about Lee very much. It's been her mom, her friends, her one-time lover, like almost everyone but Lee. It just speaks to how everyone not justly, is searching for that validation. Other aspects of Laura's performance, and um, and Laura here is played by uh, Pernell Walker, doing, doing a great job, because I was not as aware of how many notes she's required to hit. She's completely different with Lee than she is with the other girls. Her kind of quiet confidence when she's with her sister and learning to kind of roll with the punches there, and then her desperation when Laura is trying to tell her mom, like you said. And Laura's validation, it seems to be what role she's playing in Lee's life. One of the things that hit me really hard this time around was the quiet heartbreak that Laura communicates when she sees how head over heels Lee is for Bina. It's like this sudden, oh, this is what's going on. And she looks so dejected. I love how it prefaces that realization with Laura going to the club without Lee for once and feeling kind of the sense of isolation that Lee does when she doesn't feel like she belongs somewhere. Now Laura's in the club. She's adrift she is searching for someone to anchor herself to so laura's subplot this time around they really go through the whole range of emotions with her and i, I was just super super impressed with pernell walker's work here she's fantastic and I, and I like that term that you said about anchoring herself too because laura relies on lee as her crutch to stand like as much as laura has that swagger and I, you know i'll show you how to get the girls and you see her dancing with two women at a time and getting women's numbers she's supposed to be the most experienced there's a lot of times when you realize laura needs lee more than lee needs laura even something as simple as going to the 
sex shop to pick up something <laughs> yeah. for Lee. You could see that for all her swagger, Laura is very much embarrassed to do that. If you're the image that you are per- perceiving yourself to be, that shouldn't be a problem for you. But you could almost get the sense that she just ran in there, grabbed the first thing that she could see, paid, and took off. And when she sees Lee does have genuine feelings, you get the sense that that's something that Laura is longing for as well. Similar to the short film that you picked, Laura's probably had many experiences, but in terms of getting true intimacy, that's what she's seeking as well, and she isn't able to find it. So I thought her character was really well done, and again, it fits so perfectly with everyone, I guess, almost wearing different masks for different situations. And I think that the strap-on scene, for lack of a better term amount all that, is a good place to kind of pivot and, and actually talk about Lee for a bit. I think that is my favorite scene in the movie. There is a lot of emotional heft elsewhere, but there is something so pure and honest about the cut between when Lee saying, this is what I want to be. I want you to go get me this strap-on dildo. And I love the way... uh Adapero Oduye's expression is. She's so confident. She's like, I've got this. This is who I am. And then she's standing in front of the mirror with this white dick flopping in front of her. And she has a very understandable reaction of this looks stupid, which... It's kind of subversive in its own way because there's a very unfortunate tendency for a lot of dildos to be presented as like gigantic black penises. So it was kind of funny actually seeing the reverse of that for once and the confusion on Lee's face and <laughs> Laura trying to kind of reassure her own confidence in this world that she really isn't that confident in that. No, it, it looks great. It looks fine. I, I, I totally picked the right thing for you and your white penis it's that experimentation being young trying things that you think are going to go one way and they end up going completely the other and you fall flat on your face and then even with a bit of the family reaction at the end don't tell mom about this how would the youngest sister even broach that conversation it's just such a touching funny weird little moment that is nonetheless so honest with everything that goes on in pariah just shortly after for me it was one of the more heartbreaking moments when lee is in the club and the one i guess woman from school that seems to be open about being a bisexual lee's really interested in and she finally gets a chance to talk to her but she's got this thing on her that is uncomfortable she feels embarrassed she can't she doesn't even want to get up and dance because she just does not feel at one with her own skin it's almost heartbreaking the woman is openly trying to say hey i'm interested in you all you got to do is just talk to me a little more hey let's go on the dance floor it reminded me very much of the scene in the swingers in a roundabout way where John Favreau is calling the girl he met at the bar like 15 times. Ooh, and, yeah. you, and, you, and you just, and in your mind, you're just like, just, just leave, just hang up the phone. In this case, I was watching, I feel like so bad for Lee. I was like, look, just, just get up and go. Why are you putting yourself through this torture? Just leave right now. So it's interesting that you have that moment where it's kind of silly humor, but then you still got that gut wrenching seriousness followed right after. I think that's, just kind of the the normal pain of growing up because she thought that she was going to feel or look cool with this and she does not feel cool and she doesn't think she looks cool and obviously we get some aesthetic clues to that but i don't know i i didn't really see that moment as so heartbreaking as just uncomfortably relatable no i haven't gone to a club strapping something to myself there's an oblivious to lee in that moment that even though she's got this 
thing on. The girl that she has a crush on still wants to spend time with her. It's missing those cues that I think speaks to something really universal. Like, I used to work at kind of like a little vending shop. We'd serve hot dogs and candy and drinks and stuff whenever there were college basketball or football games, and I'd get a cut of the profits and so on and so forth. And I remember standing around, and these two girls came up. I got their order, and they were like, so what's your name? And I was like, oh, you know, this is my name. One girl turned the other and said, oh, you see, Andrew's going to get her order just fine. This would be the oblivious part. And asking me what I was doing afterwards, what I liked to do. And I just kept answering, but not really asking anything in return. When they walked away, I looked to my left and all five people I was working with were just staring at me. And this one guy looked at me and goes, are you that dense that you could not see that they were hitting on you? That embarrassment that I felt in that moment, being completely oblivious to signals that I'm still at that age where I do want to pick up, but I'm completely missing them. I feel that in that moment when Lee shyly ends up rejecting the girl who is a little attracted to her, so wrapped up in her world that she can't pick up on this, that it doesn't matter if she has this on or not, the girl's attracted to her. And it just makes that moment feel that much more universal to teenage embarrassment. A similar occurrence happens later on when she starts hanging out with Bina a lot more and completely misses all the little subtle innuendos that Bina is interested in. We've known for several scenes now that, hey, something might be going on with Bina, but <laughs> yeah. Lee's completely oblivious until she literally has to like press herself onto Lee and forcefully kiss her before Lee's like, wait, what? Oh, that light bulb kind of goes off and she doesn't know what to do since so she, you know, she panics. Yeah, and that's where I admire Bradford Young's cinematography here. When I was talking about the beginning and how gripping that opening was, that was the first time I ever encountered a situation where I really liked that Kia song, the My Neck, My Back, because the dancer descends on the stripper pole like a Shiva-armed goddess, defying gravity and turning Lee's world upside down. It's hypnotic and so sexy. It's this fantasy sexiness, and Bradford Young amps that up there with the smoke and the purple and the pink over the dancer's skin before cutting back to Lee and having to reorient herself in this club. And it's a different kind of flashy sexiness than what we see with Bina and Lee later, after Bina has made her intentions abundantly clear. For someone who wants Lee to be more feminine, Audrey is a bit straight lace. There's no embrace of, I guess, traditional femininity that we would come to expect. Nothing low-cut, nothing that really shows off different women assets, however you want to put it. Bina, in that moment, is so overflowing with her temporary lust that her breasts seem to be almost spilling out of her pajamas. And it's as blunt a clue Lee is ever going to get. And it's not idealized. Like, we get that with the morning after, too. That, to me, the actual encounter between Bina and Lee is more what sex is actually like. You are in this, oh my god, is this happening moment, and you do remember those things, like the way they looked in that top or that underwear or whatever, and then the morning comes, and we have to figure out what to do from there. You and I both found happy endings there, but Lee doesn't. And by being so specific about Lee's experience and her 
overcoming her shyness about her sexuality only to be rejected, Pariah being so specific about that makes it universal. It really hits the painful reality of sex and that, yes, intimacy does not always come even if you're physically close. And I just love how Bradford Young switches so effortlessly between that kind of fantastical sex as a product and then more of the grounded, this is what you will remember after the fact sort of sexual encounter. Yeah, and his cinematography, I think I've seen about seven films that he's shot. I even started a little letterbox list just ranking his films because all his films are fantastic in terms of just the look and design. But one of the shots that caught my eye too was when Audrey is trying to woo Arthur. She does the whole waiting up for him in her lingerie, but when he comes home, she pretends that she's asleep. The red of that gown shines through, but as he comes in, he doesn't even acknowledge. She does all the typical, I guess, flirtatious things that you would do to try and get his attention, and he pretty much comes home, wants his beer, wants to watch TV, and that's it. And that rejection is interesting because we've seen her being rejected throughout the entire film, and then I can't remember if it comes just before or after Lee gets her rejection, but that whole quest for intimacy, physical intimacy, but the rejection that comes along the way happens a lot in this film. Uh, just while we're on the subject of intimacy as well, one of my favorite small details of Pariah, and this is where D. Reese's screenplay portion works like gangbusters, is how Lee becomes better as a writer. When we see her early on and she's doing recitations of her poetry, it's the stuff that you would expect from a high school student not really sure about where she fits in. There's a lot of talk about butterflies and letting your light shine through. But by the end, it's staggered. Her poetry has a knife jab edge to it when she says, I am broken, open, broken, open. She's toying with the language more. She is working with how these words sound in addition to their actual definitions, like what image broken open can make without saying the butterfly is ready to fly forth from the chrysalis. And I know it wasn't that bad, but it's still kind of your typical teenage stuff. And I just love that Dee-Rees decided to actually let us see how Lee has grown as an artist and how these experiences have not defeated her. They have not broken her. That also speaks back to the quote that they have at the beginning, I think from Audre Lorde, about how the bird with no legs keeps finding trees with no limbs. This is an imperfect being trying to find a spot for itself in a world that is itself imperfect. And that's a lovely little summation of Lee and the confidence that she has at the end. She's imperfect, everything around her is clearly imperfect, but she's choosing where she wants to land herself. I love that Deary's tied that around actually with Lee's writing instead of just telling us, oh, she's become such a better writer. Writing and just art in general plays a huge role in Lee's development. Even when she starts hanging out with Bina and getting closer to having that first relationship encounter, at least in her mind, possibly a true relationship, they talk about music, you know, and it's, oh, well, you don't know this band. You don't know. It's like, oh, well, how about this? How about this? How do, you, do you listen to rock and roll? You might like these indie bands. There's growth there as well. It's like, oh, hey, this is actually kind of cool. Throughout the film, as 
terrible as her life is in terms of like just the family dynamics and having to play a part art has always been one of those things that helps her get through and even when she's kicked out of her parents house when do we see her next she's out on the rooftop and she's writing she's expressing herself through that art and i I like that about this film always kept it somewhat optimistic and we walk away knowing that even though her life has still got many struggles ahead you feel more confident for her in terms of her being all right than you do for the rest of the family or at least for her parents as painful as pariah is and audrey if she's going to have a healthy household has the most work ahead of her i do love that lee ends on such a strong note she's a great person pariah is a great movie everyone does a fantastic job and i'm sure when i watch it for a fifth time i'll be just as surprised at the ending as i was the previous four watching it for the third time i was like how do i not have this film in my collection so i'm definitely <laughs> going to be hopping on amazon you know even if i have to, to wait for it to come through via import or however i'm going to find it but i'm going to hop on amazon and definitely add it to the collection because it, it feels wrong not having it on the shelf right now so And for listeners in the States, if you go to Amazon right now, you can rent it. It's only three bucks, so I suggest renting it and joining the conversation. So that's a perfect note to end on. Andrew, where can people find you? Uh, well, you can reach me on Twitter at Can't Stop Drew. You can also go to my website, Can't Stop the Movies, read some of my reviews there, and shoot me comments. Or you can email us at changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. How about yourself, Courtney? Well, they could reach us um, via the Twitter account at Changing Reels AC, or on Twitter you can reach me directly at Small Mind. And also, if you want to find out what I've been watching at Hot Docs, uh, I've been writing reviews for both Cinema Access and a site called In the Seats, which I'm now contributing to as well. So you can go and find some great documentary coverage because there's a lot of good stuff that's coming out, and a few of them will be hitting theaters near you very soon, and some will hopefully hit come by you all through i don't know streaming services or documentaries are finding new ways to reach the publics but there's a lot of great stuff coming out this year that's to our benefit and folks go ahead and check out courtney's work it's been great it will continue to be great and the dude knows his documentaries so on that positive note i think we'll go ahead and close things out so i'm andrew hathaway and i'm courtney small thanks for listening This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.